Education is the most powerful weapon you can use to change the world, the famous words of Nelson Mandela. But the challenges of today make that goal unreachable to millions. As global poverty levels rise and the gap between rich and poor spirals out of control, access to quality education becomes even more difficult. There are many reasons for this, but some argue it's sometimes related to race. This issue has been at the center of the debate in the United States, home to some of the world's most prestigious universities. It was not long ago, as recently as the 1960s, that, according to Brookings, African-American, Latino, and Native American students were educated in wholly segregated schools, funded at rates many times lower than those serving whites, and were excluded from many higher education institutions entirely. As the U.S. Supreme Court considers the role of race in college admissions, we explore the many challenges facing education with the first African-American woman to lead one of the world's highest-ranked institutions. The alumni and faculty of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have been awarded nearly 100 Nobel Prizes. But how is it dealing with diversity and equal opportunity? Melissa Nobles, Chancellor of MIT, talks to Al Jazeera. Melissa Nobles, Chancellor of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, thank you very much for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you for having me. Your appointment as the first African-American woman chancellor of MIT represents a significant milestone for diversity and inclusion in higher education. What does this role represent for you as an African-American woman? And how do you see your experiences and perspectives informing your leadership approach to the scientific and academic community? I think my appointment as the first African-American woman at, at MIT in, in, the, in the role of chancellor is an example of the ways in which a culture of inclusion has created an opportunity for me to assume this responsibility. I've been at MIT for over 25 years, starting out as a professor of political science, becoming head of the political science department, then, then dean of the School of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences, and now as chancellor. Mm -hmm. And in those various positions of responsibility, I've learned much more about the Institute and have been able, through my efforts, to have my talents recognized and used to the, to the great, I hope, ben benefit of the institution. So what it shows, I think, is that uh, an inclusive and open uh, university that is committed to uh, the talents of all of its members, mm. uh, there should be uh, res uh, uh, an opportunity for those talents to be recognized and put to use. And so I'm very glad to be in this position. You talk about a culture of inclusion, and I want to touch on the issue of aff affirmative action in the United States, which is constantly debated yes. at the Supreme Court. And a recent poll found that the majority of Americans largely seem to favor considering race in college admissions, and yet there are growing calls for a nationwide ban. Where do you stand on this? And what do you think are some of the misconceptions when it comes to affirmative action? I, I, I'll say first, uh, it's our understanding here at MIT, and for those of, of, the, of the polls that you mentioned, where people think that race should be taken into consideration, is an example of the ways in which we recognize that diversity is important 
Mm -hmm. um, in education. The issue of race has been quite divisive in our country's history. That is no news. Starting with, with Brown versus the Board of Education, of course. Correct. From Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, which finally outlawed uh, racial, racial segregation in public schools. So we have a long history of trying to live up to our promise of equality. Mm -hmm. And we are still involved in that battle now here in the 21st century. But I think what's encouraging about that poll that you mentioned is that Americans, the majority, uh, not a large majority, but a majority mm -hmm. nonetheless, yeah. see the importance of recognizing race in admissions. Not the only factor, an important factor among many others. And it seems to me that in the end of the day, that's the direction in which we should be headed. But but even even though polls show that a majority of Americans, you know, want a certain issue to go a certain way, the Supreme Court, especially the current Supreme Court, which is a very conservative one, is not necessarily going to go the way the opinion polls go. That appears to be the case. But until the until the decision comes down, we'll wait and see. Well, I just just to put this into um, context for our international audience who may not be familiar with what's sure. going on right now. Uh, we have universities like Harvard and the University of North Carolina uh, that have been accused of discriminating against Asian American students and favoring black and Latino students. But I'm curious to know to what extent is that happening in, in institutions across the U.S., you think? And is it a real issue today? Well, the perception appears to be a real issue to the degree that's before the court. But I, I hesitate to, to go before uh, to talk about other institutions about which I know uh, far less. What I can say about my own institution, right. which I'm quite confident about, is that we use race among one of many factors in keeping with the current U.S. Supreme Court precedent. Now, as you acknowledge, that may well change depending on the court's decision. But we are very much within the law, and we've been able to create a vibrantly diverse class committed to excellence. And we see no uh, tension between excellence and diversity. Uh, just looking at the demographics of, of MIT, uh, the MIT's Demographics yes. and Diversity Report, which I think is a, a little below av average uh, when it comes to, for, for example, uh, black students and African students. And among the faculty, even, you have 83% who are white. You know, as a black woman and a black woman who leads a prestigious university like MIT, how does that make you feel? And how do you rectify and... and address these disparities? As I mentioned, I've been at MIT for roughly 26 years, and I've seen tremendous progress over that time. Mm. How specifically are you, are you trying to improve things when it comes to diversity? Okay. Well, one of the things that we've done uh, is uh, uh, we've instituted a strategic action plan of belonging, achievement, and community, a composition, rather. And those three things uh, are intended to create this uh, uh, even more diverse and inclusive community. Uh, so it's a concrete plan coming in consultation with the entire MIT community. That is students, faculty, and staff. Mm -hmm. We came together over the past two years and developed this plan, which we are now beginning to implement. A big part of any change, as we well recognize, is that there has to be community buy-in, right? It has to come as much from the bottom as it does from the top. Sometimes it takes longer to get to that place because you've got to build consensus. But it's my understanding and my, I think, the lived experiences we can think about around the world where things don't happen if there's not sufficient buy-in. We put in the time to do that, and now we're beginning to start. So that's a really concrete example, right, of an institutional push.
So what happens if the Supreme Court, and we're not there yet, of course, decides to, no, we're not. to, to, to ban, you know, uh, considering race in college admissions, what would a future without affirmative action look like? What would it mean for higher education in the U.S., you think? Well, there are certain ways in which we don't have to uh, speculate. There are already nine states in the United States that, through different referendums, have stopped using race in their admissions, the most prominent being University of California and University of Michigan. Have you and found what, that effective? Well, what happened at the beginning was that there was a decrease in the number of minority students in both of those schools. But over time, there has been a rebounding. It's taken time in part because schools have had to be much more aggressive in their recruitment strategies and such. What it will require is creative thinking. It's, it, for those who are supportive of affirmative action, it is not ideal, to be sure. But we do have examples of if there are concentrated efforts coming from the leadership and also from the community at large that we can, we can um, find ways to maintain our commitment to diversity and excellence. What, what about class conscious admissions? Chancellor Nobles, considering class and income uh, in admissions, would, would that benefit inclusiveness, you think, or, or, you know, or do the two go hand in hand, of, you know, race and class in the U.S.? When you look at the U.S. example, yeah. you know, some people have said maybe we should go with class-conscious admissions. Would that work, you think? Well, it, it would certainly help to the degree that any attempt to be more inclusive along barriers that otherwise may get in the way of a student even thinking about applying to universities uh, is important. But there are no, as currently now, there is no historical precedent in the U.S. that uh, prohibits uh, or encourages schools to think about class, right? Uh, race, in a certain way, is a protected category given U.S. history and, and the nature of U.S. law. So they're somewhat separate, but certainly class-conscious uh, 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 remedies or attempts are, are quite um, are, 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 are desirable and can be done. Chancellor Nobles, much of your research has focused on race and racial politics, and it's groundbreaking research, really, on politics and racial justice. And you were first interested in the racial politics of Brazil. And I found this very interesting. And I wanted to know what drew you to this subject in particular and what do you think the connection is between the idea of race and the lived experiences of citizens in countries and citizenships in countries around the world? Sure. Um, my interest in Brazil came from a deep interest in history. I was a history major at Brown University and I was a, a student of the history of the Americas. Mm -hmm. And a big part of history of the Americas, of course, is slavery. Um, and while I knew a lot about U.S. slavery, I didn't know enough about Brazilian slavery. And as you may know, Brazil was the last country in the Western Hemisphere to end slavery in 1888. Yet after the ending of slavery, unlike here in the United States, there was no civil war. The slavery was ended by a decree. Mm -hmm. and, um, but there also was there no segregation in the way that we saw it here in the U.S. But the outcomes by the time I was studying this, uh, was at the end of the 20th century, was such that there had been a civil rights movement and far many advances for persons categorized as Black in the U.S. versus that in Brazil. So mm. that puzzle is what drove me to it. And I should also say, I had a quite influential professor at Brown University. He's since passed. His name was Anani Gijigenyo. He was Ghanaian. And he was deeply interested in the African diaspora, studying Brazil, the United States, and African politics. I took many classes with him um, about not only West African politics, but also Brazilian history. So, so just to clarify, you found that 
the outcomes were worse, uh, you would say, for dark-skinned people in Brazil, for blacks in Brazil, than they were for blacks in America, the US, despite Brazil not having uh, lived the uh, legal segregation experience. Why, why do you think that is? Correct. Why was the outcome worse for blacks in Brazil? Yes, there was a very powerful myth of racial democracy, the notion that there was no racism, so it was impossible or very difficult for persons who were treated as black and saw themselves as black to organize. Uh, one of the, if you will, I suppose, silver linings of racism in the U.S. was that it made very clear who was white and who was black. There was a lot of attention paid to that. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, um, it was easier to organize. How did your personal experience, Chancellor Nobles, shape your, your interest uh, and, and research? I've read that your father was raised in South Carolina, your mother in Tennessee, and both attended schools that were legally segregated. How did that affect you? Correct. I just want to make one correction. My mother was from South Carolina. My okay, father was from Tennessee. Okay, it's the other way around. Tennessee, yes, okay. Both, okay. Yes, it is. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Uh, both were raised in, in segregation. Well, I mean, how it shaped my, uh, my, my view was that I was the first generation that didn't, was not raised in segregation. And so I felt an enormous opportunity that the civil rights movement provided. Um, and I also recognized that there was more work to do. So I was at once grateful for the sacrifices of the generations prior to me and felt an obligation mm -hmm. to do more for my generation and those ahead. And I had an optimism about the U.S. as deep and dark as it was. And certain of the optimism came from my parents and my grandmother and my grandparents who believed in their humanity. In the face of deep racism, they knew that they were full people who deserved uh, what the country of their birth uh, owed them as citizens. And our job was to, was to bring that to fruition. Are you as optimistic today when you look at the US, when you look at the instances of police brutality against blacks, which you've also researched, uh, you, your research unearthed uh, many cases of police violence against blacks in the early to mid 20th century. And you've been using those materials exactly. to develop a new archive with the Civil Rights and Restorative uh, Justice Project. Are you as optimistic and what, what are you hoping to achieve through this specific project? I am optimistic, although I must say, um, it. It, this is uh, a quite a scary period in our country's history, in part because of the very evident anti-democratic forces. Um, that said, uh, I'm heartened by young people, and maybe this is a result of where I work. I see optimism and I see students who are deeply concerned about their futures, political futures, as well as the future of the planet. And so they're looking forward and they're thinking about the world that they want to live in. So that's what makes me optimistic. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm totally glad about that. But that said, it's frightening. You know, um, our immediate period right now is quite, is quite frightening. With my research, I think what it was intending to show is that uh, uh, it's violence mm. uh, has been an important a part of, of America's political development, political violence. That's what it was meant to show. It's not... It's an ugly part of our history. It's not one that we widely celebrate, but if or even acknowledge. But uh, the the uh, racial violence that we saw in this century, beginning you know, we saw most recently with with, uh, with George Floyd, was a reckoning of sorts. And the term reckoning was used for a reason. Uh, is that this wasn't the first time that it's happened. And my research and the research of the Civil Rights Restorative Justice Projects intended to show that similar kinds of violence happened in the mid part of the 20th century. Do you think the reckoning has happened today? 
I think we're going through a bit of a uh, continuing of a reckoning as we should, right? All countries have to deal with their past. As President Biden said, a, more, a, a mature democracy, a mature society is able to look at its great achievements and its great shortcomings. And we are no less, we are, you know, I have a deep optimism in, under, in, in belief that the U.S. is capable of that kind of mature introspection. We're a complicated country. We have very a complicated, complicated history. And we all It's very complicated. And we acknowledge that and embrace it. Yeah, and I do want to talk about, you talked about young people earlier, and I do want to talk about the cost of education today and education inequality, not just in the U.S., but around the world, as we've seen with the, the pandemic. Uh, education inequality has been exacerbated in many countries around the world. Now, looking at the cost, some of the most prestigious schools in the U.S. are the most exclusive, of course, like MIT, which has an acceptance rate of, I think, about 4%. Correct me if I'm wrong there. And, this, and this, this motivates parents, I think, to go all out to ensure that their kids get into top-tier colleges, as we've seen with the recent um, admissions bribery case, right, uh, which involved Georgetown, Yale, and uh, Stanford. Has good education, in your view, become elitist? Are good universities only accessible to the people who can afford them? That's an that's an important question, and um, and I I don't uh, there is no doubt that college accessibility is a huge issue not only here in the U.S. but abroad, and certainly certain of our public universities are trying their best to remain affordable. But nonetheless, there is the perception um, that uh, college is unaffordable. For places like MIT, I should say this: we try and 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 have for years. Uh, made a commitment to making sure that our education is accessible to students, which means that we're one of only seven colleges and universities in the United States that has that is needs blind and admissions, right? So we accept students without regard to need, and we meet the full uh, financial needs of our admitted students who are undergraduates. So we are attempting to live our values in that regard. That is um, making sure that we are open to all talent and not uh, making that decision based on family need. Uh, but not all universities have those commitments um, and are able to do so. It's a substantial investment, I should say, on the part of MIT to fulfill that commitment because it's connected to our wanting to bring in the best talent. So I, I was going to ask, I mean, there seems to be some sort of idealization, idolizing, in, especially in American society, elite colleges. Why is that? Well. I think there's the perception that there are, well, usually some of the better, uh, the bigger institutions um, have some of the better faculty. Uh, so it's not entirely unreasonable that people are thinking, I want my students to be exposed to the best faculty, the most cutting edge research, uh, the, uh, better teaching methods, better resourced schools. So it's not unreasonable. The issue is thinking about how can we better resource all the universities. I was going to ask you about developing countries. From my own experience, I come from a developing countries, li uh, country, lived in a developing country for a long time, and chose as many of my peers to go and study in the United States. How can developing countries improve their educational systems and avoid the brain drain that's happening? What's, what's the key? What's the recipe? I think there are several recipes. One um, is substantial government investments. 
vote uh, in government and then likely some private partnerships perhaps. Um, perhaps writing, figuring out ways to ensure that public funds are used to support public universities. And there'd be some commitment to creating flagship universities in the countries of origin. The other is to think as the world globalizes and is becoming more and more connected, using technologies and other ways of having more robust, perhaps exchange programs, exchanges of faculty, exchanges of students, making partnerships between universities across the world. Uh, you know, the, the, the challenges that the world face are global, right? And we need all of the world's people. Um, so it seems to me that it's in all of our best interest to ensure that um, all, all points of the planet, there are great uh, institutions of higher learning. You talk about the challenges and the pandemic has been one of the main challenges in these last three years. What lessons, mm -hmm. what lessons have you learned from, from this crisis? And how do you think such challenges and lessons can help institutions like yours uh, shape their approach to education in a post-pandemic world? One of the great, um, ironically, uh, benefits, I guess, of the, of, of I, I hesitate to say benefit given the, you know, the, the, the horrors that were wrought by the mm. pandemic, but it kind of allowed us to introduce technology in an interesting way. You know, before the pandemic, we weren't doing a lot of teaching online. We were doing some, but mm. many universities here in the U.S. and I imagine around the world weren't thinking as creatively about pedagogy, how to reach people through technologies. Now we're thinking about that much more aggressively. And it, it adds another dimension to how we think about how people learn and connecting the world. I'm right. not sure that would have happened um, as quickly without the pandemic. That's something that we've learned and we're putting that into use right now. But the rapid advancement of technology has also raised ethical dilemmas in, in research, yeah. such as privacy concerns and so on. And right now, all the talk, of course, is about AI, artificial intelligence. AI has taken the world by storm and is taking an increasing role in, in the way we teach, in the way we learn, and it's becoming ever more sophisticated every day. So as an educator, what worries you the most about AI today? I think uh, as you said, I, AI can do a lot of great things, and, 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 and I'm optimistic about that. But I think we are right to be concerned that there be some guardrails, that there has to be some ethical considerations in the development of these technologies. And we have to be mindful of that at the moment that we're doing it. So it can't be an afterthought. Um, it has to be there at the beginning. That's certainly true. That's what worries me about it. The one confidence that I have is that um, there is something that's uniquely human that we all ha have to continue to nourish and to, uh, and to cultivate, and that is our ability to reason. The, you know, the machines can't do that. We still have to do the thinking. We still have to do the reasoning. So we does, it raise, the the, does it raise so, the bar for human performance, do you think? I'm, I, I hope not. It certainly raises <laughs> our... Um, I would, <laughs> I certainly think though it raises, there's a way in which it can help human performance that we can use it to further, right? So it need not be in competition with us, but rather our using it. So here again, my point that what, what these technologies begin to point of is what makes us uniquely human. And, and a bit, a, a, an important part of that, that we ought not lose sight of is our ability to reason and to use our ethics and morals. So it, all of this points up yet again, the importance of moral and ethical reasoning, and which makes it so important that we think about it when we are developing these technologies. So, so what ethical considerations precisely does MIT take, take when researching and, and developing new technologies? Well, we think a lot about 
having our students think, who are the end users? What is the what are some perhaps downsides of these technologies that you may not be considering? And one of the ways in which you can think about times downsides is making sure as you're developing the technology, you think about all the ways in which it may be used, right? That which means you may have to be in confidence conversation with different communities. So the idea is to be inclusive, to be forward thinking, um, and to think first before acting. Um, in other words, develop certain habits of mind, mm -hmm. which isn't easily lost when you get out into the world. So that's what we're thinking about, preparing our students to lead the world in which they will be entering. Chancellor Noble's MIT has been successful. Nearly 100 MIT alumni have been awarded Nobel Prizes. What makes your institution stand out, you think? What factors have contributed to these successes? And how have you been able to maintain this leadership role in education, research, and innovation? Well, we've got, I think, a quite distinctive recipe which explains MIT's impact. It is our signature ability to foster excellence and fundamental research and education, and then to use that research and education to help tackle the world's toughest problems. Uh, you know, our success rests crucially on our people, right? We uh, support, we welcome, and we collaborate with some of the best faculty and staff around the world. And of course, we attract the best and brightest of our students. We also have an attitude of being bold, right? That is, uh, our boldness allows us to think outside of the box, to encourage that kind of thinking, and as well, not only to lean into the future, but to help to invent it. Melissa Nobles, Chancellor of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you so much, I really enjoyed it.